Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we explore what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. My name is Blythe Barno. So excited to be with you this week. My pronouns are she, her, and today I'm talking to you from Hopewell Land, which is now called Newark, Ohio. I spend my days working with Faith in Public Life, where I work to bring people who use drugs and faith leaders together to end the racist war on drugs. I also serve on Surge Nationals leadership team and am pursuing ordination in the United Church of Christ, but very slowly. Let's get into this week's scripture. It's kind of chopped up. It's Mark 7, 1 to 8, 14 to 15, and 21 to 23. Here we go. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, 
theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This scripture has me thinking in all kinds of directions, but primarily it makes me think about Jesus's call to move beyond personal purity and instead focus on issues that are collectively destructive. Though I don't really think sex is destructive, but that's another episode. In my ministry work, I focus on drug policy and the drug war. The tension between the personal and the collective is present every day. Often when we talk about people who use drugs or substance use, we narrow in on one small part of the story, personal responsibility, but we forget the collective context. I hear it in its most callous forms when people blame people who use drugs for their own deaths. Well, they wouldn't have died from an overdose if they hadn't been doing drugs in the first place. When my former partner died of an overdose in 2004, a good friend said something similar to me. Well, he was a druggie, so he kind of saw this coming, right? That was the day our friendship ended. However, I'll admit that I got caught in this web too. The night my partner overdosed, somebody was with him, and I spent a decade hating them for leaving him. Until later they died of an overdose too and I was able to see a piece of the bigger picture. Individualism is a characteristic of white supremacy, and white supremacy is inherently toxic. So it makes sense that in order to find true healing or justice, we have to broaden the picture out. August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day, and in 2020, over 93,000 Americans lost their lives to an accidental overdose, including friends and colleagues of mine. Much of the narrative around this devastating loss is that people use drugs more because of the pandemic. The conclusion being that it's their fault or it's COVID's fault. Either way, there was certainly nothing we could have done about it, but we know that's not true. We know that this incredible loss of life is the result of a decades or really centuries long war on drugs and lack of access to basic life-saving resources. Nixon declared a war on drugs in 1971, marking this the 50th year of the official war. But in reality, it started long before. The first drug laws in the country were established in the late 1800s and early 1900s targeting Chinese migrants because white men were concerned that those migrants would take their railroad jobs. In the early 1900s, the first anti-cocaine laws were passed, targeting black men in the South because white men had to, quote, protect white women. In the 1910s and 20s, the first anti-marijuana laws were passed, 
targeting Mexican migrants and Mexican Americans. In fact, that's why we use the words the Spanish word marijuana in this country instead of cannabis to promote to promote the further racialization of the drug and paint Mexican migrants as drug dealers and criminals talking points that we can obviously still hear today. Drug laws were not created for personal protection. They were created for social control. They were created to protect and maintain whiteness. Drugs were not made illegal to protect public health. Drugs were made illegal to make certain people illegal. The drug war, both before and after 1971, is responsible for mass incarceration, dangerous immigration policy, and countless deaths, including 93,000 largely preventable overdose deaths last year. And yet when we talk about the harms of drug use, we don't speak of this. We talk only about the individual. We judge people based on what they put in their bodies, as if that substance makes them unclean somehow impure. We can hear that judgment echoed in some recovery communities and in general conversation when somebody refers to someone getting clean. Well, if they're only clean now, what were they before? Dirty? Sullied? Tainted? Now, I don't judge how folks in any form of recovery want to refer to themselves. That's not my business. But as a minister who doesn't use drugs, I believe it's important to be careful about who I deem to be clean and unclean. There are too many theological implications, and the church's history of condemnation is far too long. Jesus tells us that there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. Now, I get Jesus is really just making a poop joke here, which is just another reason to like the guy. But when it comes to talking about substance use, I think most of us will agree that what has come out of the church's mouth has been pretty shitty. So much of the stigma and shame that people who use drugs face is rooted in rigid and self-righteous Christian moralism, and it has had deadly consequences. I struggle with the word stigma sometimes because it's so small, but has such a huge impact. It's easy to believe that stigma is just a series of unkind thoughts, bad names, judgments, stereotypes. But thoughts produce actions, and actions produce policies, and policies often determine our futures, for better or for worse. A synonym I've heard for stigma is discrimination. And the stigma that people who use drugs face was designed purposely by the drug war. We can see racialized threads between this stigma and the discrimination of people of color. For example, we imply that people who use drugs are irreversibly diseased, have no control over themselves, and can't be trusted. We tell people who use drugs that they don't care about themselves or their communities, and so they don't deserve our help. We presume that people who use drugs are morally corrupt and dangerous, and so incarceration is obviously necessary. Individualism, isolation, purity, punishment, right to comfort, 
power hoarding, paternalism, perfectionism. These are the building blocks of white supremacy. And is these same building blocks that have shaped our response to people who use drugs. Stigma is simply a tool used to dehumanize a group of people in order to justify carceral involvement, exploitation, or death. It is why anyone with a drug felony conviction, including charges like marijuana possession, is banned from accessing food stamps and other public benefits in most states and why federal law requires housing authorities to ban access to public housing for at least three years for someone convicted uh, of drug-related activity. People of color who use drugs are explicitly and regularly targeted by this sort of violence because the drug war was designed for that very purpose. But white white drug users get caught in the wake too. Because in truth, White supremacy has never been concerned with protecting white people. It has always been concerned with the accumulation of white power, which is why white people who use drugs, white folks with disabilities, white poor and working class folks, and many others have often been treated as if they're expendable. Because under white supremacy, if you don't contribute to the building of white power, you are disposable. See, stigma is too small a word. There are a lot of reasons that people use drugs, and not everyone's drug use is problematic. But we're so caught up in issues of personal purity that we're missing the collective destruction of the drug war. I can see now that the night my partner overdosed, the person with him struggled to call for help because they knew that if they called for help, they'd be arrested. They were the sole provider for their home, a single parent, and they knew that their incarceration would mean that their child would be placed in foster care. They couldn't respond with Narcan, a medication that can reverse an opiate overdose, because they'd never heard of it, and they certainly didn't have it on hand. And when I broaden the picture out more, I'm reminded that when they left him, the very first thing they did was call the paramedics. They were being forced to choose between the life of someone they loved and their own freedom, not to mention the safety of their child. And even in the midst of those impossible choices, they tried to help. My partner didn't die because of a personal failure, either his or theirs. My partner died because of multiple policy failures. My white partner died because of a legacy of racist drug policy and a drug war rooted in white supremacy. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that there are never any negative consequences of substance use, particularly chaotic substance use. That's not true, I've seen it. But I am saying that everything is made far worse and far more dangerous by the drug war. In the process of my own healing, I've learned to be curious about where responsibility really lands and ask myself these questions. Was it my loved one? Or was it the drug war? Was it the drug? Or was it the drug war? Was all of this inevitable? Or was it white supremacy? 
We deserve to see our lives and those we love honestly. And often it requires a bigger picture. Because God loves people who use drugs, but hates the drug war. And God loves you, but wants us all to be free from white supremacy. For this week's call to action, I encourage you to go to uprootingthedrugwar.org and learn more about the roots of the drug war and what it looks like today. And as we celebrate Overdose Awareness Day on August 30th, August 31st, I invite you to honor those you've lost to both overdose and the drug war in general. And if you have any, sit with your grief. Respect it. And if you have space, maybe complicate it a little. Is there a bigger picture there? How has this war touched you? How will you commit to ending it? Let us close with a word of encouragement. May you move through this week knowing that you are deeply loved and known by a God that wishes abundance and justice for you and the world. A God that loves and trusts you so deeply that they ask you to join in the work with them. Amen. Thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Just search the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, including Spotify, which we're on now. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. 